Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening asking now that you would speak to us through your word. Uh, Father, that um, your word, which does not return void, would reach deep into us and convict us and edify us and encourage us. Uh, Lord, that we would not resist it uh, when it pokes and prods towards things in our life that we need to repent of and uh, things that we need to change in order to honor and love you more. God, because we, we recognize, or I pray, Lord, that we would recognize that in you there is life and it cannot be found in anyone else. Lord, we ask that you speak to us now. It's in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. If you got your Bibles, do me a favor. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're in verses 1 through to 10. Uh, this is actually our, our last week in 2 Corinthians before we take a bit of a break. Uh, next week, Shane, who is our high school pastor, is going to be speaking, and he won't be in this specific session of, section of Scripture. And so you get one more dose of Corinth before you get a breather. And with that in mind, we're going to just jump right into the text. So this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And it, Paul says this, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house made not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we have not been found na naked, that we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we're always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. And we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body at home with the Lord. So whether, rather, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So the proper title for what we do on Thursday nights, and by extension what happens in our life groups on Monday to Wednesday, is college and career ministry. And so the hope is that if you're here, and you're not here in like a volunteer aspect, that you're in one of those two categories. Uh, you're either going to college, whether it's your undergrad or you're working towards your master's, or you have finished college or decided to forego college and you are working towards your career field. You've entered the workforce and are pursuing a job. If you find yourself in that latter category, maybe you've noticed something that I've noticed in being in the workforce for a couple years and kind of pursuing a career. And it's very simply this, that the longer you spend working a specific job, the harder it is to separate that job from the rest of your life. I have a friend who majored at the University of South Florida in physics, and he's now at a Catholic high school in Lakeland teaching physics and astronomy. Uh, and he's the sort of guy that we'll all be hanging out in, in the conversation circle, if you will, and he'll make some joke about some obscure mathematical equation uh, that nobody laughs at because we're all too dumb to know what he's talking about. Uh, but, but he is so saturated in this sort of career field in which he finds himself that it just bleeds over into everything else in his life, that he's making jokes about the equation for the refraction of light, and I don't even know what that means, but he made a joke about it one time. Apparently that's funny. 
I, I mean, I believe him when he says that. He's smart. Um, but but maybe, you, maybe you come from a different background. I certainly know for those of us here who've been in the military, the longer that you spend in the armed forces, the harder it is to divorce the mentality that you acquire in that career field from the rest of your life. Uh, you just sort of begin to think in military terms and in a military framework. And the longer you spend, the harder it is to sort of draw that line between how you engage with people in your career field and how you engage with people outside of your career field. And in the same way, I've experienced this in my own life where I was hanging out with some friends a month or two back. Um, we were talking about work and ministry and just kind of the stuff I'm doing pastorally. Uh, and we got to the point in the conversation where there's the awkward dead silence, uh, where everybody starts to get really worried because we've run out of things to talk about. And, and there's this unspoken panic that sets in, like, is somebody going to come up with something else to say, or are we going to spend the rest of our time together just sort of stirring our drinks and and then go home in silence, and the silence sets in, and then one of the people that I'm with says, so enough about work, what do you do for fun? And then the panic sets in for me, as I realize, this is fun, this is all I do. Like, like I go home, and I sit around and stare at the wall and go, well, that's enough of my free time, it's time to get back to work. And so this sort of panic sets in because work sort of has bled over into everything in my life. And ultimately, what we do and how we work, it begins to frame the way in which we see and engage the world, especially the longer that we find ourselves in this occupation. Now, Paul has just spent at least a paragraph or so, probably four or five verses in your Bible, talking about tense. And if you're unfamiliar with sort of the narrative of Scripture, you're going, What? How did we get from the resurrection of the dead, which we discussed last week, to Paul talking about tents? And uh, maybe this will surprise you. Maybe this will help you understand why Paul jumps into this area of endeavor and thinking. Uh, it may surprise you to know that in the ancient world, being an apostle was not a particularly lucrative business. Uh, Paul didn't make ends meet by being an apostle of Jesus. I realize that people who call themselves apostles today are in a much different situation than the apostles in the New Testament might tell you something about their circumstances. But Paul didn't make any money doing this. And so Paul actually has a side job. Paul, Paul is bivocational, if you will. Paul is not simply going from town to town as a traveling apostle and paying his bills. He's actually a tent maker. That is his occupation. Acts 10 tells us that actually while he was in Corinth, he paid his bills in Corinth and he spent his time in Corinth making tents. That's what he did. In the beginning of verse 1, Paul says, For we know that the tent that is our earthly home, that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, this first word, for, implies that everything that Paul is about to say about tents is in reference to everything that he's already said about the resurrection of the dead. If you were with us last week, you know that Paul has begun to unpack this reality that the end game of the Christian life is not dying and going to heaven as this sort of disembodied spirit with a halo and a harp that floats around on clouds with precious moments, googly eyes. Uh, but in reality, the end game of the Christian life is to be reunited with a resurrection, glorified body. It is not simply dying and going to heaven. It is the new heavens and the new earth that is the end game of the New Testament. And Paul has begun to unpack this, and now he reaches into his career field. And he says, this is kind of like tense. And he begins to reach into his occupation and vocation to make sense of this glorious reality that is the resurrection 
of the dead. So he begins in this way. He says, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. So this tent that Paul is talking about that is our earthly home, a couple things that it's not. He's not talking about planet earth. That's, that's not what this is a reference to. Uh, he, he's also not talking about the house in which you live when he talks about the tent that is our earthly home. When Paul talks about our earthly home being a tent, he is specifically referring to human bodies. This is a metaphor, if you will, that he takes a tent and he says that the human body is like a tent. It is similar to a tent. That may seem like a, a strange reference for you. Uh, but but the, there's two things in my life that cause me to think that Paul has really hit the nail on the head here. Uh, the first is my experience with actual tents. So like this week, I, weekend rather, I went backpacking with my brother and my cousin. And so we were on the Appalachian Trail. Uh, we were specifically on this section called Rowan Mountain. And we packed everything up and we spent probably five or six hours. We hiked up this mountain. We got to this really very like scenic overlook uh, we sort of cut and gathered all our firewood and put it where we were going to set up our tents. And then we take our packs off and we, we unroll everything. And we begin to set up our tents. And there's sort of this unspoken realization that I think dawned on all of us, uh, which was quite simply this, that if Winnie the Pooh decides to come a-hunting for honey out of the woods next to us, the tent will not save us. It, it, it will not take much for uh, our friend Pooh Bear to snap the tent in half like a twig. In fact, if there's anything much bigger than like a possum, the tent is not going to do anything to protect us. It's frail. It's, it's easily broken. The beams that support the canvas are easily snapped in two. The spikes that drive it into the ground are easily uprooted. It was no different in the ancient world. Tents are frail things, and they are not meant to be permanent dwelling places because they do not last. And so when Paul talks about the human body as a tent, he's doing the same thing that he did when he talks about our human bodies as jars of clay. He's saying something about how fragile we are, how easily broken we are, how easily cracked and snapped and uprooted we might be. And so my experience with tents makes me go, yeah, that sounds about right. But the other thing that, that makes me think this is a pretty apt analogy is just what time has done to my understanding of my own fragility. I'm not saying that I ever thought I was invincible. I know that that's sort of the caricature of young people is that they think that they're invincible. I was a paranoid little kid. I was always convinced something was gonna kill me. So I was never like that. But, but the older I get, the more I see how little it takes to completely derail me. I can go two days without a good night's sleep and then I am completely an emotional wreck. Like, I'm not just, like, crying every few seconds. It's, it's not like that necessarily, but, but I can't think clearly. I'm easily overwhelmed by problems. I get angry really, really, really fast. Uh, I get frustrated and discouraged really quickly, and all it takes is two days in my 80 years of life without a good night's sleep, and I am completely derailed. About a year ago, I developed allergies to what I have no idea. I'm not sure. Praise God, it's not cats. But, but I'm allergic to something. And, and I haven't figured out what it is. And according to the doctor, it's just in my head. Um, so I guess we'll see 
uh, how that plays out. But whatever it is that causes my nose to run like a faucet, when I'm in the presence of it, I know because it's as though all the pipes in my head burst and it's just snot everywhere. And I can barely function because I can't go two or three seconds without blowing my nose. Slight things, small things, insignificant things utterly derail me. So when Paul likens our bodies, these earthly bodies which we have and currently inhabit, when he likens them to tents that are easily dismantled and easily rolled up and cast aside, I am inclined to say, yes, I understand the point that you're making here. He says, though, that we know that if the tent that is our earthly home, this is our current bodies, if it is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Notice the difference between the two structures that he references. One is a tent, easily uprooted, easily broken. The second is a building made from God, the body that we presently inhabit. It can be torn down, it can be ripped, it can be packed up. The cross beams can be splintered easily. It can be uprooted. But what is coming, what is promised is a building, one that is hewn from stone, one that is set on a firm foundation, one that is not easily broken or fractured or snapped in two or torn down by Winnie the Pooh. It's the difference between something that can be blown away by the wind and something that is immovable. That's the difference between our present earthly existence and the resurrection hope of the Christian life. It's a tent with no foundation, and it's a building laid on the foundation of the Son of God. Perhaps our frailty is no more clearly seen in the life of Jesus himself. We take communion every week here as a ministry, and every week we read either from Corinthians or from one of the Gospels, and we read what are called the words of institution, which is the thing that Jesus said to his disciples when he instituted the first communion or the first practice of the Lord's Supper. And so he holds up the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you, and he breaks it. And he holds up the cup and he says, this is my blood shed for you, poured out for you, my blood of the new covenant. And the perfect illustration of his body broken and his blood shed and the frailty of the tent which he inhabited comes a day after he gives us the Lord's Supper. Because you see as the tent of his body is torn apart by the floggings, you see as the tent of his body is broken under the weight of the beatings of the Roman soldiers, you see as the tent of his body is ripped asunder and nailed to a cross, the frailty of the human form is never more clearly evident than in the crucifixion of the Son of God. If there is any question that we are frail, look at the tent of Jesus' body broken for you. This tent that is torn and placed in the ground in weakness, however, does not stay that way. The body that is placed into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea in weakness is raised in power. The body that is broken for you is raised and restored and made new for you. The tent that is torn down is raised as a permanent, eternal building that cannot be broken again. This is why, uh, for, for our Catholic friends who think that the, that the Mass and the Eucharist is a reoffering of Jesus as a sacrifice, this is why we would necessarily disagree with that. Jesus cannot be crucified again. It happened once. The tent was broken once. The body he has received in the resurrection cannot be broken. 
He is raised in power and in glory, never to be crucified again. And Paul says that hope, that we are fragile tents that will be torn down, but that we will be raised in power, and that we will be raised in a new resurrection body. That hope is anchored in Jesus, who demonstrates this with his life and his death and his resurrection. So he says that when our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Verse 2, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up. Paul begins verse 2, in this tent we groan. In this body, in this life that we currently inhabit, we groan. And I think in this one fragment of a sentence, Paul reaches out and grabs something that is just abundantly clear in the human condition, whether you're a Christian or not, that the fragility of life causes us to groan and to be frustrated, even sometimes to the, de- the point of despair. Listen, if you've been sick for longer than a week, perhaps you've experienced what I experienced, where I forget what it feels like to not be sick. You're like, oh my gosh, I wish that you would just end it, Lord, because this flu is horrendous. We groan in frustration. But in even greater things, if you've battled with chronic illness, you have felt that groan that the body that is revolting against you would be restored. If you have watched a loved one die, you have felt that groan coming from the hospital bed, that what is being ripped and torn apart, that this fragile tent would be restored. C.S. Lewis, in his typical elegance, describes it in this way. There have been many times when I think we do not desire heaven, But more often, I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts, if we have ever, ever desired anything else. It is the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable and the unappeasable want, the thing that we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work and which we shall, the thing which we shall desire even on our deathbeds, this great groaning for something better in the fragile tent we find ourselves in. But notice where Paul goes from there, that we groan in this tent, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we will not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So while I was backpacking on the Appalachian Trail, um, we sort of ran into a bit of a problem, if you will. You may or may not know this, but tents are actually not very cheap. Like, you can buy a cheap tent from Walmart, and it'll last you as long as anything from Walmart will last you. Uh, That's like $20 or $30. But the tents are normally pretty heavy, and when you're climbing a mountain, the lighter you can pack your pack, the better. And so people spend hundreds of dollars to shave like half a pound off of the weight of their tent. Uh, And because 
I don't just have hundreds of dollars to throw around and neither does my brother or my cousin. Uh, we took my tent, which was a backpacking tent, and then we borrowed this really cheap Walmart tent from a friend of mine. It was an old rickety tent that from just looking at it, we should have said, no, this is a bad idea. But we don't have that sort of discernment. And so we packed the tent up. We realized that it's just feeble and kind of rocky. And we very quickly realized that th this is more than just an old tent. This is like a kind of falling apart tent. And so we set it up and the cross beams are splintered. And so we've got like twigs that we're tying around it to hold it together. And it is, it is just, it is a patchwork of things keeping it from falling apart. And we think we've got it to the point to where it's going to last. So I set up my handy dandy nice North Face tent that looks awesome. Uh, and I get in my tent and I leave my brother and my cousin to their rickety piece of crap tent. And somewhere in the middle of the night, somewhere in the middle of the night, this storm comes onto the mountaintop. Now, it's not raining, but there's lots of lightning, and it's real windy. And I know this because even in my nice tent, I can feel the wind, and I can hear it flapping. And so I wake up, and I'm like, oh, well, I've got the good tent. Things are fine. And I, I go back to sleep. And I on and off sleep through the night until I wake up in the morning, and my brother and my cousin wake up, and everybody's awake. Uh, and they're describing to me like this night of terror where they're laying awake in their sleeping bag watching the whole tent move above them, just completely convinced that they're going to be carried off the mountain <laughs> in the wind because it's just this frail, fragile thing that I've left them to with no help or anything like that. But, but here's what's astounding, right? We're packing the tent up and we're laughing because we survived the night and now it's funny. It's not horrifying. And neither of them are saying, man, I wish we had just decided to sleep out under the stars. Man, I wish we had just rolled our sleeping bags out on the rock. No, they're saying, man, I wish we had a better tent. And this is the point that Paul is making here, that we long to put off this earthly tent, this earthly body, not so that we become some disembodied spirit that just sort of floats up into the stars and plays the harp and sings glory hallelujah, not so that we would put off this body and just become some disembodied spirit thing, but so that we would put on something better. Embodied existence is not a result of the fall. Adam and Eve had bodies before the world fell into sin. Disembodied existence is not the permanent state of human beings. We are not meant to be without a tent. We are meant to long for a better one a body that is not broken and is not corrupted and is not passing away. So we long to put off this tent, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He goes on in verse 6, in light of everything that he's just said, and he says, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, it's important that we qualify a little bit of what Paul is saying here. To say that we're at home in the body and away from the Lord is not to deny God's omnipresence, not to say that he's not working in our lives, not to say that he's not active in our midst. This is why Paul sort of includes this parenthetical comma statement here. He says, we're at home in the body and away with the Lord, and then as as if almost to explain what he's just said, he says we walk by faith and not by sight. The reality is that as long as we find ourselves here on this side of eternity, there is a necessary faith element 
to our lives. We cannot see God with our eyes. We can experience him. We can read from his word. We can experience the comfort of his spirit, but we cannot see him. He goes on. He says, we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. This is a pretty popular passage of Scripture when we talk about death, that we are absent with the body, present with the Lord. Um, But it's not as though Paul thinks that when you die, you just sort of float until the resurrection and then get sucked back down. When we pass out of this life, according to Paul and Corinthians, we are in the presence of the Lord. But this is actually not really the full point of what he's saying. He talks about being absent with the body, being at home with the Lord. He goes on, and this is his point. So whether we are at home or away, as if to say whether we are in the body or out of the body, we make it our aim to please him. One commentator summarizes it like this. He says, For Paul, how long he will continue to live at home in the body, or whether or not he will die soon, and be away from the body are matters that he cannot determine. But what he must determine is how he will live. A great evangelical thinker, Francis Schaeffer, has a pretty popular book. And the question that is the title of the book is, How Shall We Then Live? For Paul, it's not a matter of whether he is alive or dead. It's a question of what he will do now. And I wonder if many of us as Christians consider that. That whether we live or we die, we make it our aim to honor the Lord with what we have in front of us. Because I, I fear that for many Christians, salvation is a, an immediate one-time event, and it never touches the framework of, work of our lives in any way. We never live any differently. Nothing in our lives changes. We don't reconsider what we do with our weekends. We don't reconsider what we pull up on the internet. We don't reconsider the nature of our relationships. Nothing shifts. But for Paul... Everything shifts. Whether I live or whether I die, I have made it my aim to please the Lord. And there's a reason for this. Verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now the Greek word here is bima or bema don't know how to say it. Don't tell my Greek professor. Um, we all must appear before the Bema seat of Christ. Now, he's referencing something that the Corinthians totally would have gotten. Uh, in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, there was a seat. It was almost like a step that leaders, judicial authorities, and powers would sit on as they made legal pronouncements and judgments. It was called the Bema seat or the Bema seat. Now, Corinth had a Bema seat. And Paul had been put in front of the Bema seat to be judged by an authority there named Gaio. You find that in Acts chapter 10. So Paul had sat before a human Bema seat and had been judged by a human court. Pontius Pilate also had a Bema seat. Matthew tells us that Jesus was brought before Pilate as he sat on his Bema seat and pronounced judgment on Christ. Here's what Paul is saying that Gaio and Paul and Pilate himself will ultimately sit before Jesus on the eternal cosmic Bema seat that is higher than every rule and every power and every authority, and we will all be required to give an account for the things that we did and the life that we led this side of eternity. 
And he says, in light of that coming reality that I must give an account for what I have done, I make it my aim to please Christ. Now, you might hear this, and and this might concern you. You you might wonder, well, if we're going to stand judgment, then what's the point of salvation? Right? I thought that that was the thing, is that we're saved so that we are not judged. And Paul actually has talked about this before to the Corinthians in chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. He describes this day when we sit before the judgment seat of Christ. He says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest on the day, and the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So what what Paul does here between these two texts is he makes it clear this judgment seat of Christ for the believer, this is not a heaven or hell thing. This is is not a do you get in or do you get out. It's a question of, what did you do with the salvation that I gave you? And there is a day in which you and I will give an account before the Lord of our salvation for what we did with the salvation he purchased with his blood. Martin Luther was famously asked how he keeps up with his many scheduled events and things like that. He's super busy guy, you know, kind of starting the Protestant Reformation and some small stuff like that. And his response has been recorded in this legendary in a lot of ways. He said, I have but two days on my calendar. There is this day and there is that day. And it was a reference here to the text that we find ourselves in. For Luther, there are but two days. There is the day in which we are living And there is the day on which we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for all of the days that we have lived. And so Paul walks through this hope of the resurrection and this future hope that we have. But he doesn't want us to get too far into the future that we don't focus on the now. And so he brings everything back from eternity future and he says, whether I'm at home in the body or away, I make it my aim to please Christ because on that day, day, I will give an account for what I have done on this day. Man, it's my prayer that you and I would bear that in mind, that that would be what fuels all of our days. As we long for the hope of the resurrection, and as we recognize that there will come a day when we sit before the Lord of our salvation, and we give an account for what we did with what he purchased by his precious blood. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would take the things that we have read, you would bind them to our heart, Lord, that you would make us a people who love you, Lord, make us a people who walk in hope, Lord, I pray that you would give us just a deeper awareness of the fact that what we do in this day has bearing on the day that we will stand before you and give an account. And God, I pray that as we come to the table now, as we take communion, God, that you would just remind us of your body broken, Christ's body broken, his blood shed, but that you would also remind us that he was not simply broken, but he was raised in power, and that we too will be raised. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.